Well, our uh, sermon this morning is going to be taken from those readings that we just read in John's Gospel, specifically looking at John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. But I think it's only right that before we dive into God's Word that we allow Him to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that He has for us this morning. So I want to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, You are the way, the truth, and the life. You tell us that you came that we might know the truth, that the truth might set us free. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning as we come before your word, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive that truth. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning of this service, we are in this new series called Jesus Walks Into a Bar. In which we're going to be talking about how would Jesus interact with and, and spend time with people who don't share his basic assumptions about life and about religion, about faith, and about God. What would he say? How would he love them? How would he interact with them? What questions might he ask? What answers might he give? And we're going to be taking a look at, you know, different instances in Scripture where Jesus was interacting with some people who were different from him and asking how that might give us wisdom and insight as we uh, proclaim that message to others. But we want to set up this, fir- this whole series this first week by talking a little bit about why. Why are we discussing truth in the first place? And uh, one of the things that I've learned recently is that every year dictionaries pick a word of the year. Did you guys know this? Yeah, they like pick a word of the year and they kind of make that a part of their dictionary or they throw it up on their website and they define it and talk about why that word is so important. And I found out that the Oxford Dictionary, uh, their word for the year 2016 was the word post-truth. That was their word, post-truth. Here's what post-truth means. It says it's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's what post-truth means. I'll say that one more time. It's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And the reason they chose this word is because of a lot of what's been happening politically, uh, not just here in the United States, but actually in in Western Europe uh, and in England. I mean, this is the Oxford Dictionary. They picked this word. They said that they were looking at the political climate. They were looking at the fact that people could get up on stage or on television and they could say whatever they wanted. It didn't matter if it was true. It didn't matter if it was backed up by facts and people would kind of support them. In fact, this word post-truth has been thrown around a lot in the media these days. It actually led one uh, commentator in the British news to lament that the truth has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is now a worthless currency. We don't care about facts and figures. We don't really care about the truth. We simply care about what agrees with my opinion. But I would argue that this, that this issue with the truth is actually not a new one. It's not a new one. It's something that, that people have been struggling with for as long as humans have existed. What is the truth? What, and where do I find it? And why does it even matter? I mean, if we go even back to Jesus' day when he was on trial and he was standing before Pontius Pilate, Jesus says that, that I've told you the truth, and Pilate cynically responds, what is the truth? 
And I think the reason why it's hard is because we do live in a world where there are a lot of opinions. And this idea of wrestling with what's true and what's false is something that I think is also relates to how we think about religion, how we think about faith and spirituality. I mean, we in the United States, we live in a pluralist society. What do I mean by that? Well, pluralism, one definition of pluralism is it simply is noting that people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different religions are all living in the same place at the same time. We live in a society where there's incredible diversity when it comes to faith and religion. So you can, you can have Hindus and Muslims and Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Baha'is and so on and so forth, all living side by side, sharing the same society, sharing the same neighborhoods and schools. In fact, a scholar of American religion, Diana X, said that the United States is probably the most religiously diverse nation uh, currently in our world and probably one of the most religiously diverse nations in the history of the human race. She said there's really only two countries that she could think of where there was this kind of diversity. One is India and the other is the U.S. We live in a society of diversity, but, but what often happens when you live in a society of diversity is that that starts to also shape how you think about things, it, it, and sometimes for the good, but also maybe sometimes in unhelpful ways. And I would say, especially when it comes to religion, we tend to adopt kind of a pluralist attitude about religion. Because when you think about pluralism philosophically, the definition of pluralism philosophically is this. It's a theory or system that recognizes more than one ultimate principle says that there are many truths, many truths that even though they might seem to contradict, they can all be held simultaneously. And I think many people think about religions that way. They say there are many truths, but, but really it doesn't matter. And I think some people in our society have taken it even further and have kind of lapsed into what we would call relativism. Relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or context and are not absolute. Relativism says it's not that there are many truths, it says there's actually no truth at all, and that what we claim is truth is simply a product of our culture or our society or our historical moment. And so we wrestle, we say, well, well what, is, what is really true, especially when it comes to questions of God and of faith and religion? I remember as a, as a teenager, I was talking about religion with one of my friends in high school, and, and he shared with me this story. It's the story of the blind men and the elephant. Are you guys familiar with this parable? I see some heads nodding. The, the story goes, goes a little like this. It says that there were, there were five blind men, and they were wandering, uh, they were wandering together one day, and they, they happened upon an elephant. And the first blind man goes forward and he, and he grabs a hold of the elephant's leg and he says, Ah, I found a tree! And then the next blind man kind of stumbles forward and puts out his hands and he touches the side of the elephant and he says, I, I've run into a wall! And the third blind man kind of comes along and he reaches out his hand, he grabs a hold of the elephant's tail and he says, I have a rope! The fourth blind man uh, ends up touching the elephant's ear and says, I, I found a fan! And the last blind man reaches out and he grabs the elephant's trunk and he goes, ah, it's a snake. And my friend said, but, but the truth is they're, they're all right, but they're also all wrong. They're all touching the elephant and, and they're accurately describing what different parts of the elephant are like, but, but they also, they, they fail to see the bigger picture. And he says, religion is kind of like that. That the world's religions are, are superficially different, but fundamentally the same. 
So they may have different holy books, they may have different holidays, they may have different ways that they dress or customs or rituals, but at their core, all religions are essentially the same thing. They're superficially different, but they're fundamentally the same. And I think that that sounds extremely tolerant in a pluralist society. We, I mean, we can get along by saying, well, we all basically have the same core idea, right? The problem with this, though, is that it only works up until the point that you actually start studying what these religions teach. That the moment you start to dig beneath the surface of different religions and different worldviews, you quickly find they are drastically different. This really came home for me when I enrolled at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and I became a religious studies major. And as I was going through classes, I had to take classes on the world's religions. I had to take classes on Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Islam and Christianity, as well as many other religious traditions, the Sikh uh, faith, uh, the Baha'i faith, the Mormon faith, so on and so forth. And I quickly found that as you dig into these, these religious books, they're not really all saying the same thing. In fact, they have radically different ideas about some really fundamental questions. I remember one moment in particular when this, then the, when this really hit me. Um, during my sophomore year, there was a day of service that brought together people of different religious traditions and backgrounds. And so we all gathered together to serve our local community. And so it was Hindus and Buddhists and Jains and uh, Christians and, Jew and Jews and Muslims. We all came together and we went out into the community and we served in food banks and homeless shelters. We served the poor, the elderly, uh, those who were in hospitals and in need of care. We, just, we spent a whole day just serving side by side. It was an awesome day. It was a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, we gathered together uh, for a meal, and we talked a little bit about, well, what, what from your faith tradition inspires you to serve others? And we told stories, and we looked actually at scripture passages from different religions that talked about serving others. And I remember there was this, there was this one guy, this young guy sitting next to me, and he said, you know, I'm an agnostic. But I love the fact that all you religious people are getting together and serving your community because often when I hear about different religions, it's in the news. And all I hear about is how you guys are fighting each other and tearing each other down. And I think it's really inspiring to see religious people of different backgrounds coming together to serve their community. But I have an issue. So the issue is this. As, I, as I'm reading some of these texts about why we should serve people from your different religious traditions, I'm reading things like, well, you need to serve people in order for God to love you. You need to serve people in order to have salvation. You need to serve people in order to become enlightened. And as a non-religious guy, that seems really selfish to me. And I want to know how you guys would answer that. And I kind of piped up and I said, well, I'm a Christian. I believe that there's nothing that I can do to save myself, that my salvation is a gift that's given to me by God through Jesus Christ. That Christ came into the world, that he loved me, that he died for me, that he rose again. And because of that, that's why I'm accepted. And the reason I serve is not in order to be saved. I serve as a way of saying thank you to God and of loving my neighbor. It's really not about me and what I get. And he kind of nodded his head and he's like, wow, that's really cool. Can anybody else say that? It's an honest question. Can anybody else say that? And the, the circle was quiet. And after some awkward shuffling, we moved on to the next conversation. But here's the reason I share that. It's not to tear down other faith traditions, but I, it was a moment where I said, wow, there is a fundamental difference here. 
about what does it take to be saved? Is it something that I have to do and earn, or is it a gift given to me by God? And it goes in, as you look at the other world's, world's religions, you realize there are other fundamental differences. For example, is God a person, or is the divine simply an impersonal reality? Different religions would say different things about that. Am I supposed to have a relationship with God, or am I supposed to simply destroy my desires and fade away into nothingness? Different religions would have different answers to that question. Is God one? Is he a unity? Is God a trinity? Are there many gods? Different religions have different answers to that question. What is the ultimate purpose of human life? Different religions have different answers to that question. Should I pursue social justice or not? Well, again, different religions have different answers to that question. If we're all made in the image of God, then yes, I should pursue social justice. But if my station in life and the equalities that I see around me are the result of my own actions in a past life, then maybe I shouldn't really be about trying to right the wrongs in this world. Maybe I should just let people live in their particular caste systems and work off their karmic debt. You see, the implications matter, not just for what we think about God, but how we actually live in the world and what we do. Different religions have different answers to some of the most basic questions about life and about our ultimate destiny, our ultimate purpose. And it brings us back to this parable of the blind men and the elephant, because the truth is, how do we know that the blind men aren't actually touching different things? How do we know that they're all touching an elephant? I mean, it could be that the one blind man really is touching a tree, and another is touching a rope, and another is touching a wall. How do we know that they're actually touching the same thing? Well, there's another way of telling the story, and that's that a king comes along and tells the blind men, you're all touching the same thing. He helps them understand that while they've got part of the truth, he has to then describe to them the whole truth of the elephant. And the reality is, is all the world's religions are claiming to be the king. They're all saying, well, yes, other religious traditions might have parts of the truth. I see the whole elephant. Our faith sees the whole elephant. And let me describe to you what the elephant is like. We're all claiming to be the king. And in fact, this is no different of Christianity. Jesus steps into the world and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes into this world and claims that he sees the whole picture. But Jesus claims something even more radical than what I think the other world's religions claim because one of the things that Jesus tells us is he says, it's not that you're all blind men touching an elephant. It's that you are blind men wandering in the dark and you're not even close. You're not even close to the elephant. But the good news is, is that I, the king, have come into this darkened world in order to take you by the hand and to lead you out. But I, the king, have entered into this world in order to take you by the hand and to help you see. To take you by the hand and move you out of darkness and into the light. That's what Jesus claims. It's a beautiful claim. It's this idea that God doesn't wait for us to grope around and figure him out. It's that he actually comes into this world and reveals himself to us. But it still leaves a big question, and the question is this, is how do we know for sure? 
What makes Jesus' word more reliable or more trustworthy than any other religious figure? Because you have Muhammad over here saying, I see the elephant and I have the whole truth. And you have, you know, the, the Hindu gurus saying that I know Brahman well and I see the whole truth. And then you have the rabbis saying, I know the God, I know Yahweh and I know the truth. And you have the Buddha over here and his followers saying, I'm the enlightened one and I know the truth. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the question is, well, how do we know? How do we know? Because they're all claiming the same thing. So what makes Jesus stand out? Why should I believe his truth claim over any other truth claim that's out there? Isn't it just one more option on a menu of options? The answer, I think, is what makes Jesus, what sets Jesus apart. The reason why I believe in the truths that he claimed is because of this. It's because his tomb is empty. See, Jesus came into the world and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He comes into the world and says, I am God incarnate. And the way you will know is that I will rise again from the dead. Jesus actually tells his detractors and his enemies, he says, even if you tear down this temple, speaking about his own body, even if you tear down this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. And sure enough, three days after he is nailed to a cross, three days after he is betrayed and abandoned by his friends, three days after he is condemned in a sham of a trial, Jesus walks out of the tomb. And that vindicates everything that he claimed about himself. He says, you know that my word is truth because I rose again from the dead. It is just as I have told you. In fact, this truth was so radical that the early church is willing to stake their lives on it. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In fact, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, there is no reason to believe anything that Christianity claims unless Jesus, in fact, rose again from the dead. The reason we believe Jesus is because he rose again from the dead, because his tomb is empty. We stake everything on that. Because the reality is, is if Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead, then I have to wrestle seriously with everything that he claimed about himself. And to acknowledge that he has something that stands head and shoulders above any other truth claim out there. I think it's pretty amazing. Jesus doesn't just claim to have the truth. He demonstrates it in a powerful way. But it gets even more beautiful when you stop to think about why he did it. Because Jesus didn't just die and rise again from the dead just to prove a point. It wasn't just like, aha, see, I'm here, I'm back. I told you so. That's not the reason he did it. I want to go back to that, to that John 14 text for a second, that, that moment when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want us to read it in context because it helps us understand why he did it. Let's read this out loud together. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him.
See, Jesus comes and dies and rises again so that we might actually know God. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not trying to erect a wall. He's not trying to build barriers between other people. He's actually trying to knock barriers down. He's saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know God. And he says that is a gift that is for everybody. That's for anyone who's spiritually hungry and seeking. Anyone who's wondered, who is God and what does he think about me? He says, you can know because you've seen me. Because you know me. I have come to you. The good news about this is that God doesn't leave us groping around in the dark trying to find him. God enters into the darkness and leads us out. I love how John's gospel begins, talking about Jesus, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true life, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, it's for everyone. You don't need to be some sort of spiritual giant or religious leader. You don't need to be some sort of faith pioneer or super enlightened. Jesus says, no, 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 no. God loves you. God has come into the world for you. And here I am right here, right now. That's Jesus' claim. He enters into this world so that people might know God, that they might know of his love and of his grace, that they might actually have a relationship with him. Jesus didn't wait for us to find him. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to get out of the bar. Jesus walks into the bar. Jesus comes to us so that we might know God, that we might know his love and grace. And we know that what he says about himself is true because he rose again. We know that when he says there is eternal life, the gift that I've given to you, that he knows what he's talking about because his tomb is empty. That's why we're doing this series is because there are a lot of people out there in this world today who are seeking. We're trying to know what's, what's real and why does it even matter? We're, trying, we're asking the question, you know, if there is a God, why should I care? There are others out there who are saying, I believe there is a God, but who is he and what does it mean to follow him? And so throughout this series, we're just going to be imagining kind of some of those conversations and looking at Scripture and saying, how can Scripture inform our own interactions with people who might be of a different background than us? How would Jesus speak to a Hindu guru? What would he say to a Buddhist monk? How would he interact with a Muslim imam? How would he talk to a Jewish rabbi as one rabbi to another? The reason we're asking this is not so that you will know what to say should you go to India or Saudi Arabia or Southeast Asia or to Israel. The reason we're talking about this is because these are our neighbors. These are our friends and coworkers. They come from different spiritual and religious backgrounds. They have some of the same questions that you and I do. And we want to ask the question, how can we love them the way Jesus loved them? How can we share with them the truth, the truth that sets people free. How can we listen well to their questions, to walk alongside them in love, and to help them see that Christ is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that he wants to have a relationship with them right now, right here today. This isn't about us setting up religious straw men and beating them down. It's us asking the question, how would Jesus love our neighbors who don't have the same assumptions that we do? What would they talk about? 
how would they walk together? My hope and my prayer is that we would indeed be a community of faith, a people of God who not only know the truth, but who share that truth with others who are seeking. My prayer is that as we walk together, we'll learn that, and we will then share that with a world that is searching. So I want to invite you to bow your heads and to pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And that you have come so that the truth might set us free. And so, Lord, we pray first and foremost as we go throughout this Lenten season, Lord, that you would help us to know the truth. You would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. But more than that, Lord, that we would take that truth out into the world and with love, with grace, with humility and compassion, we would share that truth with others who are searching. And we do pray, Lord, that more would come to know you and more would come to become like you as they follow you as your disciples. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.